astronauts of Apollo 8 were uniquely and rightly awed by the beauty and the splendor of God's creation. I can vividly remember as a 10-year-old little boy the voices of Frank Borman and Jim Lovell and William Anders and their crackling sounds over an AM radio that Christmas Eve so long ago. Those three men were appropriately moved to express their admiration for what they saw in terms of the biblical testimony from Genesis 1. And there's a direct line from and to God that passes through reality. Reality that includes creation, fall, redemption, and ultimately consummation. To fail to appreciate and respect God's creative order, including His wise design and benevolent plan for humanity, is to put God and His gospel into an eclipse that obscures both salvation and any hope of human happiness and human flourishing. God's design is good, and God's order is perfect. If we neglect, distort, pervert, and destroy this, we do it to our own present, future, and ultimate demise. Make no assault, make no have no doubt that this assault upon the family is an assault upon humanity. It's an assault upon creation. 
It is an assault upon God himself. But be reminded of this. Humanity's assault upon God will ultimately prove to be as impotent as a young child shooting at an elephant with his pea shooter. God will be God. He will remain. And we may exhaust our peas, our pea shooters, and ourselves in the process and ultimately be destroyed. But God's truth will remain, and God himself will endure. Let's read, if we will, beginning in that first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 1. I'll begin in verse 26. I will read through uh, the end of chapter 1. Again, Genesis 1, 26, as we uh, begin uh, today a series that will extend through Father's Day. And typically I call it our family uh, series, and that, that is good, but it, increasingly I see that it is broader and deeper than just the family. As I've alluded to already, it is the defense and definition of reality and sanity that is at stake in our day. Read with me. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening. And there was morning. The sixth day. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your truth. For a foundation that is sure. Uh, may we see you. See your glory, see your wisdom. Uh, may we be prepared to defend, uh, to teach, uh, to live in light of these truths uh, for our good, for your glory, for the sake of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You don't have to have a degree in engineering, or be a master builder to know that it's an essential thing for any building to be structurally sound, it must have a solid foundation. Most of us are aware of someone 
that has either built or bought a home that find out later that there's something wrong in the design and or the construction of the foundation. And to go back and remedy those problems is typically tremendously problematic and tremendously expensive. And what we are doing, what we are seeing, and I won't even say it's an American problem. I think it's just a modern problem. It's a contemporary problem sweeping across the entirety of the developed world. I guess those of us that live in first world countries have the time to think long enough to drive ourselves to complete insanity. And that's what we are doing in that we are attempting to build lives upon a foundation that cannot stand the wear and tears of all the issues of life. The structure that is now being built without a foundation is now in the process of collapsing upon itself. And great is and great will be its demise. And so in Genesis 1 through 3, you not only see the foundation laid for what we would call the family, it's a foundation for reality, for truth. And we receive evidence daily that an increasingly loud, shrill, virulent, and even violent group of malcontents want to divorce human existence from the divine confines and contours of reality. Just as that house without a foundation won't stand, a world without foundations won't stand either. I'm reminded that a few years ago, <clears throat> there was a book published, something to the effect, everything I needed to know, I learned in kindergarten. I might paraphrase that. Everything you need to know, you will find in Genesis 1 through 3. If you can master that, or again, as I've said so many times, you allow it to master you. You're well on your way to human flourishing. So what is this business in Genesis 1 through 3? Myth, allegory, complete fiction, some type of morality tale with a loose connection to reality? Or is it an accurate and purposeful recollection and explanation of creation's origin, of creation's design, of creation's purpose that still resonates and is still relevant for this day and this time. So we look at chapter 1. It seems to me that the perspective is that of the transcendent God who has created and is distinct over and independent of His creation. God is transcendent over creation. 
In chapter 2, we see what is somewhat a second accounting or a second narrative of creation that we look at uh, next week. And it's a God who is eminently and intimately involved with his creation. And as we said, there's so much wisdom for us to discern in chapters 1 and 2. If we would just go by it, life would be good. But as I will remind you time and time again, the problem with Genesis 1 and 2 is that they are followed by Genesis 3. That which God has designed and still remains as good is difficult and cannot be accomplished without His direct divine intercession and intervention. As we come to Genesis 1 and going back to those first verses that we heard those astronauts read, the Hebrew reads, Barashit bara Elohim hash hashamayan ve'et ha-haris. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No argument for, no defense of, God is. Maybe that's the most important presupposition that you will ever accept. That God is, and if God is, God is in charge. Amen? And so God is, and He has created. Notice there in verse 2. The earth was without form and void. That's an interesting notation that the earth is going to go from a bad situation, namely being formless and void, to a good creation of being full, of being purposeful. And it's interesting that this language appears once again in the prophet. The prophet Jeremiah appeals to this concept of formless and void. Again, the Hebrew is tohu wabohu. If, uh, not that y'all need any help insulting anybody, but if you ever want to come up with a creative insult, uh, you can tell them you're tohu wabohu. You are formless and void, okay? Not that your preacher needed to give you that kind of information. But Jeremiah reflected on the events of his day, the days just preceding the fall of Jerusalem, the Babylonian invaders coming to take captive the citizens of Judah and Jerusalem. And he wrote this, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. It was tohu wabohu. Because of the evil of those living in Judah, it has reversed to a situation that is cursed, namely that of being formless and void. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. And I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities laid in ruins before the Lord, before His fierce anger." So what is it? Because of the wickedness of the people, even creation order is being reversed. 
And I think that's something like what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote Romans 1, verses 18 and following. It is the natural course of fallen human history to revert to tohu wabohu, to be formless and void, to come up empty, to come up meaningless. Why? Because as Paul wrote, they suppress the knowledge of God. Now, to be sure, I think that is, and when Paul wrote that, he was already speaking from a historical perspective. He was looking at the entirety of humanity post-fall, that they began with a certain knowledge of God, and they suppressed it, and they descended, and they descended, and they descended into chaos. Culture after culture after culture has replicated that pattern. And so we see here in verse 20 of Romans 1 that God has revealed himself and his internal, eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. You can't fly to the moon without a perception of the order. Rocket engines rocket because of God's design of his creation. Rockets go to the moon and come back because of God's design of creation. And so they understand, they know there's a great and wise and orderly God behind all they see. But in suppressing the knowledge of God, they become futile. It's almost like becoming formless and void. They become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so we see that increasing in the pace, increasing in that very sobering refrain of Romans 1, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, committing shameless acts. God gave them over. And again, the final stage, and we see it every day. Though they know God's righteous decree for that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval. They celebrate. They celebrate. We live in a world now where that which within my lifetime would have been called the most horrific of vice is now called a virtue. They not only do these things, but they give hearty approval to those who do them. That's what happens when people, when humanity turns their back upon reality, upon order, upon design. So while we believe and defend the intact nuclear biblically defined family with healthy homes or what's best for the families involved and for those not necessarily directly involved, namely society, there's a greater good than our own well-being, as important as our own well-being is. 
That, that good involves the recognition of God's good and wise will and our obligation to submit to it. The plan includes permanence, hierarchy, roles, authority, and submission, fruitfulness, and more within the family. And this is all for our own good, for the living, for the live, and in living color, animation of the gospel, the testimony to God's glory, the message of His mercy, and the power unto His salvation. So as we think through these verses this morning, there are five words that you want to jot them down, hang on them, five D words. We're going to talk about God's decision, God's design, God's distinctive, God's directive, and God's description, just to help you kind of break down and put this business in categories. Beginning in verse 26, God's decision to create. I think we would probably all ask the question, as we read, then God said, let us make man. Who's the us? There in Genesis 1.26, and I'm going to give it kind of the, the shortcut, but while it is not the full-blown doctrinal exposition of the reality of a triune God, a, a three-person God, a single essence God, one God in three persons, the us foreshadows our understanding of the Trinity, of the plurality of uh, the Godhead. And to be sure, we've already seen the Spirit of God mentioned in Genesis uh, 1. And as we read into our New Testament, we find Father, Son, Spirit are all involved in the work of creation. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, speaking of the Lord Jesus. Colossians 1.16, for by Him all things were created in, in heaven and on earth, visible and vis invisible. All things were created through Him, and get this, for Him. All things were designed to reflect His glory. Hebrews 1.2, in the last days, He has spoken to us through His Son, through whom He created the world. To attack creation, to, cre to attack reality, to attack order and design is not just to assault humanity and assault creation. It is an assault on all three persons of the Trinity. It is nothing less than cosmic blasphemy and treasons. It's not just simply preferred pronouns and bathrooms as, as sane as that nonsense is. It is a futile and self-destructive assault upon God, which will be ineffective, but it will be effective in doing great damage to those who bear His image. And so, God decided to create, create, it was an independent decision. He created freely. He did not build out of need or loneliness. He did not need to prove anything. I, I just happened to notice 
in the past few weeks, the NFL draft. A lot of young men in their early 20s overnight become multimillionaires. It's not unusual uh, to see them in the matter of hours after receiving those first enormous checks go out and start buying things, jewelry, cars, clothes, houses, to show what? That I have arrived. I am the man. God did not need to prove that he was God, but he chose to display his glory. And so he created creation out of the right desire that he be glorified. That is, the highest thing that there is, is the glory of God. So God's creation is purposeful. He created to display his greatness. Isaiah the prophet wrote this of God, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. All these things my hands have made. I mean, it's, it's just trying to give us a, a picture that as great as the earth is, it's but a footstool of Almighty God. Think about the created order, its size, its beauty, its complexity, its power. I'm told that our universe is 92 billion light years across. I don't even have an ability to put that in any type of perspective. My understanding is if the Milky Way, our galaxy, was the size of a grain of sand, that it would exist in a universe that's 400 yards across. That's how big our universe is. Now that is the Milky Way galaxy that is 124 million light years across. Now, let me give you another illustration of creation's design and purpose to glorify God. How many of you grew up in a house in which some wise soul said something like, turn out the lights, close the door, were you raised in a barn? Anybody? I guess I'm the only one that ever heard anything like that. In other words, don't waste energy. Have you ever thought about how much energy is expanded in all the billions and billions of stars in the sky? Our sun, which is, my understanding, is a rather modest, unimpressive star in terms of stars. In one second, produces more energy, or excuse me, produces a million times more energy than the earth will consume in one year. In one second, our sun produces more energy, more power than the earth consumes in a million years. And yet there are billions and billions of stars and the light switch is left on. The light switch is left on. Why? Why? Why waste that energy? It's not wasted. It gives testimony to what? There 
is a great God in heaven. Yes, that it is a worthwhile endeavor for the billions and billions and billions and billions of Jagakilla and Mega Hectawatts to be burned to reveal the stupendous nature of his glory. No wonder so long ago the hymn writer was moved to write, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars and I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Power, wisdom, goodness, and on and on it goes. Whether we look at our world through a microscope or a telescope, it is glorious, it is big, it is huge, it is powerful, and yet it pales in comparison to its creator. And yet he's chosen to reveal himself as wise and powerful and good to give to us the testimony and the revelation of his knowledge for our good. And so he created intelligently and purposefully and certainly with the infinite knowledge down to the minutest detail of the problems that he would have. And he knew the resolution. And even in resolving the problems, in fact, he would be most glorified in resolving the problem, the problem of human sin and rebellion that he knew was sure to come. And so we see God's decision rooted in his character and his will to create. Now let's look at the design of his creation. The meaning of image and likeness. Again, back to verse uh, 26. Let us, God said, make man in our image and after our likeness. What, what, what does he mean? What, there, there's the, the literature is incredible on the subject of what it means to be an image bearer of God, the imago day of God. And one thing that I'm quite sure that this indicates is God placed human beings upon the earth as his physical and eminently present representatives to display his authority over the earth, okay? And so, now, I believe image and likeness involves quite a bit, and we're going we're gonna to talk about it, but we're here to represent God and to advance his interests for his glory. But this, this, the reality of our being image bearers makes us unique, makes us even glorious and honorable. We have a privilege and responsibility unique to our identity. And this reality of being an image bearer of Almighty God makes things like sexism and racism and abortion and euthanasia 
and eugenics and all of these things, it makes them inherently evil as they are an affront to this divinely bestowed identity as image bearers. And so we are unique in our identity. We are, in essence, the crown of God's creation. There's no one else like us. This includes what we might call the existential awareness. We're self-aware. We're aware. We desire that there's something beyond this world. We genuinely do not want to be dust in the wind. We genuinely don't want to look at our lives and go, it's meaningless. It's a vapor. It's the chasing after the wind. We do not want to be the happy idiots only struggling for the legal tender. We fight, we rail against those things. We desire transcendent meaning, something that is permanent, something that is objective. We desire truth that is rooted in reality. That's how we define truth. Truth is a reflection. It, it is rooted in reality. Truth conforms to the character, will, and revelation of God. Truth is objective, eternal, transcendent, and eminent. Truth defines good and evil, vice and virtue, morality and immorality. God made us as moral creatures. And to be sure, in our fallen state, our consciences are marred. That moral compass sometimes people uh, speak of. It's still there. It just may point south for north and north for south. Our compass is inconsistent. We know there's a right and wrong. It's just we may have wrong right and right wrong. As I watch my grandchildren, there's never any doubt as to who's got the moral high ground. There's always at least one of them that's absolutely sure that that's mine, that that's my room, it's my turn, it's my time. Now, they may be completely wrong about whether it's their time, their toy, or their room, or whatever it is, but they know that there's a right and there's a wrong, okay? God made us that way, but we have to have something to orient us to that which is absolute, to that which is objective, and that objective truth is God and His revelation in His Word. So we have a, a rational mind. We make evaluations. We can make comparative evaluations of worth and beauty, ethics and aesthetics. We understand things such as logic and cause and effect. We make plans versus acting on instinct. We reflect we have an immortal soul that like we know life extends beyond uh, this physical realm. We're relational. We see this when we get to chapter 2 next week. God said what? It's not good for the man to be alone. He designed man to live in uh, community. And so we're relational. We're relational with one another. God gave human beings this unique capacity of verbal communication and other types of communication to be sure. But we are unique in that possibility of uh, creating uh, community and relations. And because of this high standing, we have responsibility for ourselves, body, mind, soul, uh, for creation, 
for our understanding and our dispatching of the roles within God's design and mandate, which is inclusive of this business of being fruitful and multiplying. God charged us to rule and subdue the creation. Sometimes it's argued that work is a product of the fall. And I would challenge you to look at Genesis 2.15 and see prior to the fall that God had placed the man in the garden to work it and keep it. Man's assignment is to represent God upon, his, upon the earth and to utilize and cultivate and marshal and understand and protect and manage and to carry out each assignment responsibly. We see God's decision. We see something of God's design. Let's look at God's distinctive of male and female. Is there really any difference? I mean, really. Is there really any distinction that should be maintained? It seems fairly obvious to me that it is normative for men to be physically bigger, faster, stronger. Now, not only do I remember Apollo 8, in fact, I remember Friendship 7, I remember Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. Early 1970, Battle of the Sexes, a very washed-up, mediocre tennis player, well past his prime, challenged Billie Jean King to a tennis match. And she beat him like an ill-behaved stepchild. And so those things can happen. But all things being equal, this idea that we see being advanced now, that some man can decide, I'm no longer a man, I'm actually a woman, and I should compete in women's athletics, is complete nonsense. It only makes sense if you're out to destroy and to do great harm to not just women's athletics. There's not, there's not much importance to women's athletics, not much importance to men's athletics, you get right down to it. But the destruction will go out from there. there there's a reason, you know, when kids start playing sports, if you're very, very talented, they may come to your 10-year-old and 12-year-old and say, we'd like for your child to play up two or three years. He can compete with the older children. But what you don't see is what? Hey, we want your 15-year-old to come down and play with the 10-year-olds so he can dominate those 10-year-olds. Well, it's about as much sense as saying these boys should be playing girls' sports. But all that's silliness. There are physical differences anatomical differences, internal and external. There are uh, distinctives of male and female design for, to complement one another, uh, to cooperate with one another. The female is not essentially or intrinsic inferior to the man. She equally bears God image, God's image, but she does have different roles to fulfill. Without the complementary, notice the word, complementary, meant to work Together, without the complementary designs and roles, there's no possibility to fulfill the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Who's more important in the mandate, the man or the woman? They're both 
Haven't we heard the word essential a lot in the last few years? They are equally essential. They are equal partners in the endeavor. We, we talk, we've talked before about this. Are there physical anatomical distinctions between women's brains and men's brains? Women, don't y'all, y'all be quiet. Now I'm telling you, okay? Are there differences between the female brain and the men's brain? My understanding is at least there's one. Women think with a whole brain. Men think with what? Half a brain. There's some evidence that certain hormones in men destroy some of the connections between the hemispheres. Uh, there's some suggestion that there's differences in size of different types uh, or different parts of the brain uh, which have to do with different functions, that men may be inherently better at some things, women better at other things. We can argue that, and kind of in, in view of that, and in, in retrospect, I, I've been a bit laid up the last few days. You may sound the, hear the creaking and croaking in my voice. But on Friday evening, I watched uh, the very fine movie, and it's rare for me to say any movie is very fine, uh, called Hidden Figures. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. Um, I'm always interested in things pertaining to World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and the space program. And this was the story of a group of African-American ladies that were employed by NASA in the late 40s into the early 60s in the days of segregation. And they were called computers, okay, because they ran all types of sophisticated uh, geometry and uh, uh, other type calculus and beyond ran these formulas to help figure out how to put this rocket in space. And like all movies, you know, that are based on a true story, there, there's obvious liberties. But as I sat there and watched it, I remember signs on stores, whites only, white drinking fountains, white bathrooms. I remember those days. And, and certainly as I, I watched the movie, and if you've seen it, when uh, one of the young ladies comes to work uh, there in a particular department, uh, she goes the first day to the coffee urn and gets a cup of coffee and everybody stares. She comes in the next day, and there's a separate coffee pot that says colored on it. And the movie chronicles some of the struggles she had. Now, was she a victim of racial prejudice or sexism or both? Now, I think primarily it was rooted in race, and that's inherently evil. And I, I wish I knew more and more about the story, I, how these ladies got the education to do that math in segregated America, 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s. But it's a, a great story, and it reminds us, again, of this equality that women have unique abilities and unique contributions. And I, I couldn't help 
if you'll allow me a moment of reflection, Octavia Spencer, I think, was the big name star in, in the movie. And she was the spitting image of my third grade teacher, Ms. Rachel Stubbs. When I went into third grade, Chattooga County Schools integrated. And I walked into my classroom, and my teacher was an African-American lady. Now, my parents didn't kick up a fuss. They were in a position they could have. The superintendent of schools was one of their best friends, and they could have made a phone call. They never said a word. And I thought about Miss Stubbs. I don't know. I don't know if she endured a colored coffee pot in the teacher's lounge. I don't think there were segregated bathrooms. But what a dynamic and sweet and impactful lady in my life. And it reminded me of the inherent evil of these things. And again, the challenge that so many uh, overcame. And she overcame it to be a blessing to me and so many others. And so uh, my parents had the wisdom to keep their mouth shut and send their kid to school and let him learn. And we had a great year. And I can remember at least one of my classmates graduated with UNA, from UNA with me 12 years, 14, 15 years later. One of them got a PhD in chemistry. And one of them developed that Corvette Museum in Somerville, Georgia. And so, Miss Stubbs did pretty good, I think. Anyway, all right. So, there's, there are distinctions, there are differences in design. Those designs, those distinctives are there for a particular reason. They reflect the wisdom and the glory of God. Because of the different design of the brain, women much more quickly assimilate data from various sources. And sometimes you talk about women's intuition. And that's not an old wives' tale. I've, I've heard many husbands say, you know, my wife said there was something wrong about that guy. And you know what? Time passes and you know what you find out? There was something wrong about that guy. Okay? And so, again, just we're designed differently to carry out our assigned roles. We're designed for particular purposes, and those purposes can't be mixed and mingled anymore. Then going to your toolbox and getting a hammer out to do the paintbrush's job. Now you can paint a wall probably by dipping a hammer in a bucket of paint, but your wife will send you back to redo it. In fact, you can't take a screwdriver to do a socket wrench's job. Now, both are designed to install and remove threaded metal fasteners. But they're designed to do it in different ways to accomplish a particular purpose. And men and women are designed to carry out unique functions within God's design for our own good and for His glory. To complement, not complete, not com conflict, and the blessing and the mandate are intrinsically related to our assigned 
roles. What God has designed and assigned, let no man degrade or deface. Boundaries aren't meant to be transgressed. So we see the decision, the design, the distinctive, the directing, God's directive to the image bearers. God blessed them, verse 28, and said to them, be fruitful. I have given you the entirety of creation. I have designed you on the basis of my image. I have designed you as male and female with distinctives to complement for the sake of fulfilling the mandate. I've given you dominion. You have responsibility. You have privilege. With this blessing, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue the earth. Marshal its resources. Utilize them for your benefit. And the blessing and the distinctive of male and female makes success possible. The design and the cause and effect. All of human productivity is possible because of the order of God's wise design. Now think about this. The the predictability of the sunrise makes it possible to organize our days and nights. What if we had no clue when the sun was going to come up tomorrow? whether it was going to stay up for 12 hours or two hours or whatever the night was going to extend for 48 hours, but we can predict these things. The certainty of gravity allows from things like electricity from hydroelectric dams. You dam water up high, you let it fall through through a port, spins a turbine, certain realities of God's design of the molecules of creation create electrical charges that flow through wires and fire these lights up, all because of God's design. And God has given us the mandate to marshal, to utilize these things, and it works because of God's design, okay? God's design is good. God's design for gravity, for water flowing downhill, is a good design. We can predict I've never seen water flow uphill. Maybe you have, but I haven't. Water doesn't flow uphill. It flows downhill. And it creates a certain type of energy that can be marshaled for human good. And so God designed us with certain properties to be observed, to be cultivated, to be utilized for our good. And so after God's directive, we see God's description of his work. In verse 31, God seems to pause and inspect and appreciate, and he declared what? It was very good. It was very good. I've done a good job. He did a a good job because he is the omniscient designer. He is the excellent builder. And this is his inspired, inerrant, infallible evaluation. It is good because he did it. He does all things well. It is good because he said it. He never lies. He's never wrong. When we fail to see his design, his order, his plan as good and right, we dishonor him. It's still good despite our cosmic disaster of the fall. To transgress his good boundaries is cosmic treason and blasphemy. To transgress is moral insanity and cultural suicide. To redefine marriage, we cannot rule and subdue, fill the earth. To redefine sexuality, we have the same problem. To transgress roles is to rebel against God 
It's to abandon the principles of blessing and flourishing. It's to suffer the consequences of things not working according to their design. It's to harm all involved, okay? Everybody gets damaged when we abandon our roles or pervert our roles. If you're an abusive husband, abusive male, you're doing damage to yourself and others. If you are a neglectful husband, you're doing the same thing. If you're an abusive or neglected wife, you're doing the same things. And you're going to create dysfunctional offsprings. So, it is a fact, and to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, the creation of male and female foreshadowed God's ordination of marriage. Marriage is the drama, the covenant, and the relationship whose ultimate purpose is to illustrate Christ and his love for his church. God's wise and benevolent design of male and female anticipates the creation of marriage, the basic community upon which human society will flourish. So our celebration, affirmation, protection, and participation is best done when it's done in the appreciation of its ultimate purpose, that is, marriage and the distinctive qualities of the male and the female designed for marriage were given to display Christ and his great love for his church. All attacks upon the institution, whether a doctrinal subversion or a reinterpretation, any external interference that threatens a marriage, any internal intrigue that undermines the unity of marriage, and any endeavors to dissolve a marriage is a broadside attack upon the gospel itself. To attack the institution is to assault the underlying foundation of humanity, of created order, of divine revelation, of God himself. We don't have to fly around to the dark side of the moon to be awed at the beauty, the genius, the rightness, the goodness of God's creation. However, we should be as moved as those Apollo astronauts were 55 years ago to each day recognize to celebrate, to protect, to propagate the greatness and the goodness and the glory of God displayed in His wise design. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the goodness of Your grace, for the goodness of Your revelation to us. God, I pray that we would see you in your design. That indeed we wouldn't suppress the revelation of your goodness, but we would rejoice in that what you have given to us for our good as a testimony to your goodness and as a foreshadowing of the goodness of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.